Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast, episode number 30. The practice of being seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. These are conversations with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships and relationships shape stories. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and creator of Connectfulness. I'm joined by my co-host, Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. This is the practice of being seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. As you may know from listening to episode 28 of the Pobscast, Marisa and I are unblending and both pivoting in our own directions. She's going to be diving back into her writing and creating an amazing community for fellow writers and explorers of words. And I'm going to be continuing on with the podcast. We are holding space for an amazing group of healers at our revision retreat, August 13th to 16th at Menlo Mountain. We're just getting so excited about it. We are putting the finishing touches on the retreat and having a chance to dive in in consultation with all of our guests. And it's just becoming so real and exciting. For those of you out there who are listening and will be there, we can't wait to see you. Today's episode is one of the last few pre-recorded co-hosted episodes that Marisa and I will be releasing. There are two more co-hosted episodes to follow. And then that will be followed by one more episode this season before I take about a month off (laughs) and come back with a new season and a slightly new direction. I hope many of you will stick around and continue to enjoy the show. Today, we're joined by an amazing photographer. You might notice that that's a theme this week. On episode 29, we sat down with an old professor of mine, a photography professor, Janice Levy, and and today we sit down with our good friend, Robin Ivey. Robin is an amazing photographer, and you'll learn a lot more about her and her work in this show. Robin also has a retreat coming up this October in Mexico, and there's a link to that in our show notes. It's called the See Here Now Retreat, and we're really excited to share that with you too. Today, we introduce you to Robin Ivey. Robin is a professional photographer, visual brand strategist, creative director, speaker, and coach who has helped a wide range of business and individual clients see themselves and their businesses through a new lens. Her ability to look at things from multiple perspectives has given her the ability to see the possibilities, truths, and solutions that remain invisible to others. She brings a deep understanding of what holds people back and brings it into the light so that it can be seen and overcome. For nearly 20 years, Robin has been offering her clients a way to shift their focus and tell a different story about themselves, one in which the heart of who they are and what they stand for shines through. But in order to tell a new story, you must first come to know the one that you are buying into. 
Robin is an expert at uncovering her client's deeper message behind the brand and communicating it with the world through powerful imagery. And now, enjoy the show. So, Robin, we're so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So you're one of several people we met at Camp GLP who's made it onto the Pobscast. And I need to tell a little story about that because, you know, went to Camp GLP, a a big event for entrepreneurs. And I was really thinking, you know, I'm going to go and this is professional time for me. I'm away from my family. Like, I'll have some fun, but this is really professional development. And then there was this one workshop I signed up for that kind of felt like my goof off one. And it was going to be about photography as a tool for self-discovery. And I'm like, all right, I'll let myself do that in the afternoon. And lo and behold, that workshop that I did with you for an hour and a half or so was probably the most, I guess, one of the most important moments I had in that entire very transformational weekend. And I'm not just saying that, I swear. Remind me to ask you for a testimonial. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and I've gone back to my notes so many times because at that point it was last August and Rebecca and I were in the process of knowing that the practice of being seen was coming into the world. We had already had our community with that name. We knew the podcast was coming. And you really helped me understand that how to see that through what's probably a very obvious way is through photography and through looking at an object through a lens. And it helped me as a writer begin to see the world in a very different way. And I'm so grateful for that. Oh, well, thank you so much. So kind of you to say that. Yeah. And I have a feeling, you know, it seems like one of those like, duh, realizations, but I have a feeling I'm not the only one who all of a sudden walks in and says, oh, photography, that could help me see in a whole new way. Yeah, you know, I don't know if most people even think about it. It seems to me like there's camps of people, like those who are hobby photographers who know that they're interested in it, but I almost never run across people who have drawn the connection between their interest in photography as an art form or as a practice with cultivating a capacity to see and the implications for how to see other things in your life through different lenses, which is ironic to me because I feel like in the coaching world, in the entrepreneur world, in the podcast world, in the blogging sphere, so many people use the metaphor of like seeing through a different lens or like looking at their life through another lens and turning a different lens on something. So it's this language that we use. And yet I haven't really found too many people who come to photography intentionally for its transformative possibilities. I love that, Robin. You know, I don't know if you know this about me, but I went to school for photography in undergrad. Awesome. (laughs) And a lot of, I believe, what I was doing in my undergrad experience was that I was kind of playing with how I saw the world. I struggled to make the leap into a profession with photography because that wasn't how I was using it, which is why I'm now a psychotherapist. And I don't think they teach that, or at least, I don't know, I've never gone to photography school, but I think my understanding is that's not, I think we're on a new frontier here a little bit. I'm so excited about this conversation today, (laughs) and I'm excited to hear about what you think this new frontier is, and also just how photography is a tool that we all have access to that can help us all kind of shape our view of the world. Yeah, and especially now we live in a time where people are so image-driven, right? And with Instagram and social media, people are having a relationship to photographs in a completely different way than they ever did before. 
you know, you see it even in like the selfie generation, just the level of comfort, the difference when someone walks into my studio, who's, you know, 28 or older, they're still uncomfortable. And anyone, you know, 27 and below, they come in like, how do you want me? Pose, 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 you know, they have a different capacity to see themselves. Although, you know, that might be another conversation, but I'm curious how they see themselves, but they're far more comfortable seeing themselves, at least visually, than our generation is for sure. It's fascinating. Yeah. And yeah, I know I'm you think a lot about how images and relationships are, for lack of a better term, in relationship with one another. And you said that you see this new emerging generation having a different relationship to photography. My first question was, hmm, is that a conscious relationship? I think it's culturally driven. I don't think they had a choice to stop and think about it. I think the fact that social media blew up and has done what it has, I think it just created a platform that it just became their new normal. You know, like for mm. us, our normal was that there were stunning photographs on the cover of Time magazine, on National Geographic, Rolling Stone. We had certain magazines that hit the mark for the caliber of photography that we were accustomed to. But now the younger kids is expected everywhere and they're accustomed to it and they have relationship to photographs in a completely different way than we did. It's part of their day to day, which is part of why I think that it's really important that we start a conversation about the intentionality and the consciousness around the imagery because it's just huge right now. So if we're not talking about it, then there's a lot of mindlessness where there could be mindfulness. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, I studied pre-digital photography. Mm. So when I was in school for photography, we were still developing our own film. We were still in dark rooms. I remember getting a few irritations on my skin because I worked in the dark room from the silver. So like it was a very tactile thing. And mm. when we printed our images, we'd often still want to leave, you know, the borders to show like, no, this is how I framed it when I took it. It's untouched. Yeah. And that's like a whole different conversation now. There's so much about how we see things and how we share things isn't necessarily like there's something else. There's another layer there that we don't necessarily know about or we know that it exists, but we don't know if we can trust it. And I'd also say that if, at least for me being in the dark room, I mean, my first dark room experience was in high school and it was such a peaceful place to be. I mean, part of it was just the nature of it, right? Because it had to be dark, right? Obviously in the name, but there was something very mindful and very present about being in the dark. And also because you were working on a really quite a short time frame. So you needed to be mindful in order to make sure that you didn't overdevelop or underdevelop. But there was something very peaceful about being in that dark, quiet space, developing something with focus. And that's a little lost. That is not the same sitting in front of a laptop or mm -hmm. posting to Instagram, that's for sure. It doesn't mean you can't shoot that way, but the back end process of that is different. Well, the word that you were saying there is developing, which is obviously a very common term to you know, remember having to get my photos developed at CVS back, in, yeah, back right. in the day. But, you know, and you were saying before how you people aren't necessarily seeing the connections about we talk about seeing through different lenses and changing your lens. It's also that idea of developing has become something that we use for, you know, website development and not thinking about it in that very painstaking process that a photographer would go through. I'm having one of those, it's the same but different moments. And I, I agree don't really with have you. the words yeah. around that. You well, know? it's funny because I think even back then, you know, if you buy a roll of film, you 
spent six bucks or 10 bucks on your roll of film and everything about the process was intentional because you had to decide ahead of time what speed film you were going to choose to put in your camera if you put in a color roll of film well you couldn't take a black and white picture so if you wanted to shoot black and white you had to decide that ahead of time and if you wanted to shoot in bright daylight you had to choose that ahead of time so and if you wanted your images to look really grainy versus really clear you had to choose that ahead of time that, exactly so i feel like it's not that we've lost the capacity for the intentionality of it, but I think that there's just requires a little bit of a shift in consciousness to decide when to be intentional. Because now, even with my DSLR that I shoot within the studio, you know, I still convert everything to black and white after, and I can still make some conscious decisions, but they're different than the ones that I had to make before. So a little bit for me is like, where in this process now do I want to or need to add intentionality when it used to just be part of the process? And that was so much of the workshop that you led this summer. And I know that you're leading other workshops in other venues now where you invited us to use our cell phone cameras to really just sit with one object for several minutes and shoot it from so many different angles and see it as a meditative process. Mm -hmm. And that was unbelievably powerful. And I know for me, as a writer, I found a rock that had a quote, I think it was by Maya Angelou on it. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I found the exact right thing. And I recognized within the first few shots, no, I need to get away from words. And I just need to find a stone alone. And that in and of itself taught me so much. And then spending several minutes shooting, I got even deeper. Yeah, and even the process of choosing what you want to shoot Mm. is interesting. You know, when you're given a simple task of to go out and to find something, well, that something leaves a lot of room in that for what's calling to you. For me, that's the first moment that says, in order to find the thing you want to shoot, that's the moment you have to quiet down and really start to center in. Because otherwise, the thing that's calling you, you can't hear it, really. So for me, when I'm teaching people or when I want people to understand the idea that the entire process of seeing can be intentional and can be mindful, it starts for me the minute I decide I'm going to go out and shoot something. And so I really love the fact that we all have iPhones that we carry everywhere. It was why I chose. I debated a little bit in the workshop if I should invite people to bring real cameras, but at the end of the day, everybody has their phone and it wasn't a workshop so much about how great of an image can you get and how high of a quality can we print from. So that part wasn't as necessary. For me, the intention was to be able to send people out and say, I want you to shoot something and I really want you to stay with it. And then to recognize that even from the moment that they got up to walk out of the cabin and decide that right there is where the consciousness starts in. Because in order to know what's calling you, whether it's a tree or a rock or somebody else in the class or the picnic table, whatever it was, if we're not quiet and present with ourselves, then we don't hear that call. And for me, that speaks volumes about everything in our life. If I'm not quiet, if I'm not present, then I'm not able to hear the whisper And so I felt like it was important to give that exercise right out of the gate and to ask people to sit longer because we are so used to seeing things. And right now, I think three minutes is like the attention span people have. So if to ask someone to sit with a rock for more than three minutes and to give themselves permission to start looking at it more deeply than they would, 
it's really not about the rock. It's about cultivating a deeper presence within ourselves to just keep seeing and to keep challenging ourselves when we believe we've seen enough. Like it really, for me, translates into, no, no, I got this. I already know. I already know. I'm good. And what really starts to happen when you stay with it is like, that's when the magic happens. And that's when we open up to a different possibility. And in that simple exercise, you open up to the possibility of seeing that rock. Maybe you see a crack in it you hadn't noticed before or the shape of it differently, or even just your own reaction to it. Like all of a sudden there's these subtle, gentle, aha moments, even in something as simple as just how you relate to a rock. You know, you've got me thinking. And one of the things I'm thinking about is how throughout my life, throughout my early life, my adolescence and my young adult years, how I used photography as a way to slow things down. Mm -hmm. You know, especially when life around me was really loud and relationships might have felt a little bit more difficult or I was going through something. I remember this one trip I took with my family to visit Auschwitz with my grandfather. And that was such a emotional trip. My grandfather was a survivor. And so it was such an emotional trip. And my camera became like, a soothing device for me. You know, I don't know if I was there so much to take the pictures and to make a film, but it was my way of being able to tune inward and check in with myself. I feel like for people who have a relationship with a camera, there's just a deep knowing that when you hold the camera up to your face, it's like a forced tunnel vision. And as soon as the rest of our world sort of goes out of focus, we see a little more deeply. And I feel like photographing at Auschwitz would be just such a giant thing to do. So, wow, how moving. It was. What a moving thing to capture. But I also feel like sometimes the camera gives us a purpose. It's not just that it gives us something to do, but it gives us a way to be with people, with them but separate from them, which sometimes can feel really important if you're a sensitive person or you're someone who's trying to witness something or trying to experience something that's a little bit more felt than just seen. Because the minute you're looking through that viewfinder, at least for me my whole life, it was an unintentional experience of things getting much quieter, much more in focus and much more present and alive. And that wasn't something that like, I could never sit here and be like, at 12, I knew I would just be present and conscious and look through this. Like, I had no idea that that would be part of the gift of it. But I have ADD myself, and it really didn't occur to me until a couple of years ago that I think one of my own like self-medicating processes over my lifetime was to use my camera because it's very difficult to bounce around in your own head or with your feet when you have to hold a camera still and you have to look through the lens. When you're looking for something, I feel like I would love to speak to like native people who went out hunting because there's something very intentional and specific about having to get into that zone. It's probably true actually with like certain levels of athletes as well, right? Like anything where you have to get into that zone where distractions and too much movement kind of ruin the flow, but it does impact our capacity to see more deeply. Yeah. Well, you know, you're cutting out your peripheral vision. When you pulled that camera up, you're picking the frame that you want to look at. And maybe you're going deeper, you're picking your focus, but you're narrowing that lens. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it's so interesting to be the non-photographer listening to the two of you speak. I feel like I'm taking the role of witness and watching the photographer with the camera up to her eye and wondering and both hoping that those around you, those around any photographer is understanding that there's a transformational act happening. You're actually giving yourself some vital medicine and giving people future medicine with the photos you're taking. But in that moment, it's not necessarily that you are avoiding being in a difficult space or that you're not being present. You're finding a different way to be fully present that isn't available to everybody else because they have to look through their own lenses. Right. Except for now with these phones in our hands, right, right. you know, I don't feel when I shoot with my phone and I don't experience this with other people, although maybe that's just a judgment I'm projecting, but I do think there's something quite literally about putting the camera up to your face and being forced to look through a smaller lens that changes something versus like being able to hold up the phone. I'm still looking at the screen, which is looking at the thing like, and the periphery is still active. But I do think there's a way to take the tool might be different, and it might function a little differently. But I do think there's still a way where it can have a similar outcome. I find it to be a lot more difficult when I'm using my phone versus when I use a camera to communicate to the world around me what I'm doing. Mm. Right. You I'm know? not on Facebook right now. <laughs> right, right. You know, and like, because everybody has a phone and everybody uses it for so many things and not everybody takes artful or mindful photographs with it. So it makes it a little bit more tricky to, like you're saying, Robin, to go into that Zen place with a phone because of the relationships that we're having with the people around us. Well, and as you carry the phone, a text can come in, a call can come in, right? That doesn't happen with a camera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I remember meeting you for the first time, I think it was, Maybe it wasn't our first meeting, but it might have been our first discussion in the parking lot leaving Camp GLP. Yeah. I hadn't had a chance to come to your workshop, and Marisa was telling me about it, and we got to have a brief conversation with you. And one of the things I remember us talking about was the term seers. Mm. And I remember just this like buzz of excitement between the three of us. And I'm wondering if maybe we could go there a little bit and talk about what that means. Sure. Um, like what it means to you. What does it mean to be a seer? Not a problem. You know, I guess for me, it's funny because I've been shooting since I was like 12. And a lot of this stuff I hadn't really ever thought about until, I don't know, I guess some of these things have just kind of been epiphanies along the way or little aha moments. As I look at my own self through new lenses and perspectives, I just keep kind of finding these awarenesses. But I do think that there's a responsibility if you're a seer, because the reality is we're looking at things on purpose, you know, we're looking and maybe it's just for the goal of getting a really great shot. But even if that's the case, the unintended benefit of that is you still look at life in a broader context or a zoomed in context or just looking at life on purpose really changes how I've seen my life especially in the role as a witness, right? Like even documentary photography, just going to the streets of Boston and shooting street photography, the way I watch people, you know, whether I learn about how people walk, I learn about how people 
connect to each other. I mean, there's something powerful in just being a witness. And I think the camera, it's a little bit of a hack, right? Because it gives us a reason to be looking at people and situations and circumstances that we might not otherwise have permission to be engaged in. Like if I were just sitting on the street looking at people without a camera, they may not be quite as open and I might not see it quite as clearly. But having the camera in between gives me a little bit of a different way of engaging in a situation. But you As know, I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, gosh, I went from being this photography witness to being a relationship witness, right. sitting with couples in my office all the time and like seeing things that people wouldn't give me permission for. But the when truth say- is, I'd be curious anyway, if, you know, part of the practice of having photographed, like if you had photographed people for a long time, I would bet that you learned a lot about people without realizing you were learning about people. Oh, so because, much. I know so know. much about body language from what mm. I did back when I was being a photographer. Yeah. So I used to teach yoga long before I'd kind of taken up photography as a profession in my former life. Before certifications, all that were part of the deal. I used to teach yoga and that gave me the gift of knowing how to understand people's body language even more innately. I mean, I think it's like flip-flops. I think because I had been shooting so long anyway, then I think I saw people and their body language differently than many like green yoga teachers would. But then yoga really intensified that capacity to see the way people hold their shoulders, the way they hold their grief, the way they protect themselves, the way they can become expanded and exalted. All of that, the physicality and some of the emotionality that we store in our bodies became really central to how I saw and what it taught me about what was going on behind the scenes of people. Then quickly moving into like deep portraiture work, how people show up for themselves and what they bring to the table and what they hope you won't see is really profound. This feels like the time to ask you about Project 3.8, because that sounds like it's such the culmination of being the witness and being the seer. And then, of course, bringing these really special images to different communities. Yeah, my little children. Yeah, so I photographed 20 local children last year who are either cancer survivors or active cancer fighters. We had one angel in the group, meaning that he'd passed away. But that was really my gift to our community to say, hey, you know, these children are here and their families are here. And we really need to raise some awareness to be far more present about taking care of them and at least in our community, there hasn't been a whole lot of awareness around pediatric cancer. And really in my lifetime, I don't feel like there's been a whole lot of awareness about most people know about like St. Jude's and the Jimmy Fund. But that hasn't really ever translated in to knowing how to talk to a child on your kid's soccer team who has cancer, for example, or knowing what the right thing to do is when someone in your community's gotten that diagnosis for their child? Do you talk about it? Do you not? Do they need food? Do they not? Should I offer to help? Should I not? Do I mention the kid has cancer? Should I not? There's a tremendous amount of taboo around pediatric cancer that I think really stems from people just being terrified that it might happen to them and having to confront their own discomfort with the possibility that that could be their child as well. How did you find that Project 3.8 helped people confront that discomfort? I mean, I think the first thing was that the photographs that I took, they were meant to be a point of engagement. And so the hardest thing for me as an artist in that project was to figure out how to be honest about the rawness and the horror, for lack of a better term, of a pediatric cancer diagnosis. I didn't in any way want to make it look less 
awful than it is. I didn't want to beautify something. I didn't want to make it more palatable for people just so it would be easier for the audience. And at the same time, because I felt like that would be disrespectful to the journey that these families were on. But at the same time, I felt like in my lifetime, the images that I could hold in my mind of children with cancer were all very grim and very depressing and usually quite clinical. So it was almost always kids in hospital beds who looked very sick and always bald and lots of needles and stuff. And the challenge is that that is really true, but it's only part of the story. And at least here, like the children who are going through chemotherapy, they go to a clinic typically once a week. It's a light-filled clinic and there's lots of kids and they're playing on the Wii and they're making goopy Play-Doh stuff and they're not locked down in a hospital bed vomiting. It doesn't mean that's not part of what they do, but I felt like it was important to humanize it in a way that the audience could see hope in their journey and laughter in their days. Because some of these children, they're on t-ball teams and they're playing soccer and they're doing all those things and they're going once a week for chemo and sometimes they don't feel well, so they're not going to soccer practice, but much of the time they are. And that was something that I really hadn't known. Like I had the story running through my mind that it was like the images had been portrayed when I was a child. And in fact, that's not the reality or how it is anymore. So it was important to me that the images that I captured would be authentic to the disease and the path and the journey of treatment, but also provide the audience a way to stay engaged with the image long enough that they could be open to be educated. Because I think what sometimes what happens is when, when we're confronted with really gruesome, disturbing images, even if the photographer's goal is to really make an impact, the only way to make that impact is if you can actually hold the attention of the audience long enough to say, hey, this is what's happening and this is why it's really important that you know about it. And by the way, here's what you can do to make a difference. And if you lose them before you get that opportunity, then you really haven't made much of an impact in my mind. So um, You're trying to build a relationship and create a conversation. Right. And so there's no conversation if the person has left the building. And what I feel like you into this conversation. Well, a good friend of mine's son had cancer, and I had photographed her many years ago, quite soon after Dorian had been diagnosed. He had rhabdomyosarcoma, which is a relatively rare soft tissue cancer that they found presented first in his leg. And his mom thought it was growing pains. And then he fought for four and a half years and passed away last March. And in the end, the last three months of his life, his dad had said that he wanted to become famous in China. And so he posted that on Facebook and our local community and then the world at large really rallied around him. And it was really quite one of those like kismet opportunities where Dorian had an amazing magnetic personality and he was wise beyond his years. And I think the combination of his personality plus just the cause alone and then the world just really wanting to help this little boy because we knew his days were numbered and people wanted him to have the opportunity to see him be famous in China. And so people started holding up signs on Facebook. It said D strong. And next thing we knew there were, you know, 120,000 followers on his page and media out the wazoo and images were just going all over the place. And since I had photographed him, many of the images that I had taken of him were the ones that they chose to use to promote his campaign. And then in seeing the outpouring of love and appreciation and attention, I just felt like 
it was a sign to me that our community was ready to be educated. And if the door was ever going to be open for an opportunity to teach them something about pediatric cancer and have it be a turning point into action where people could help these families, that seemed like the moment. And what was ironic to me is I didn't feel like a lot of people were talking about the fact that Dorian had cancer or how many other children in Rhode Island have cancer. Instead, it was really more focused on him wanting to be famous. And I felt strongly like knowing Dorian that he wouldn't have wanted his legacy to just be about being famous because that really wasn't a value of his relative to wanting the world to know more about cancer and to help his friends who are still here and still fighting. It's such a touching story. Yeah. What have you seen mobilized because of this campaign throughout your community? Really what I saw was, first I was just impressed that people showed up. You know, the first night that we did it was Labor Day weekend. And I remember walking, we were doing it at this really high-end hotel here in Watch Hill, stones throw from Taylor Swift's house. And I kept thinking, I don't even know if anybody's going to show up. And then I thought, you know what, like we got 20 kids, which really meant like 60 or 70 people who showed up were just going to be family members of these children. And I thought... At that point, I had really decided, like, I was doing this for Dorian and doing it for Dorian's mom, Melissa, and doing it for these families. You know, I knew it would be enough if they came and got to see these pictures because they'd been so heavily involved in my process and the process. And so for them to come to an unveiling and see their child, this, you know, giant portrait, it was something that none of them had ever witnessed before to begin with. And so I thought, well, okay, if this is the only people that shows up, I can live with that. And like, that will be success for me. But we had over 400 people come through the door, and it was wild. And I couldn't believe that so many people came out wanting to see photographs of these children and wanting to support this. And so, you know, by the end, a few thousand people made their way through the shows. And I think we did an incredible job of being able to educate at least our local community and raise awareness. So it was really worthwhile. You know what this is making me think of and kind of that metaphor of zooming the lens out a little bit, as I know you talk about finding new ways to see ourselves by questioning what we do and, you know, what our habits are. And I'm just making me reflect on, you know, what, you know, of those 400 people, many of them who might have been strangers to these families, what might that have done to them? What did your images do to them? What did they help them see in a new way? Hope. And what was really cool is most of the shows, the majority of the children in the show came. And so I think what was amazing for people, because people would whisper to me going in and they'd say, now how many of these children are still alive? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, all of them except one. So there was already, I think even at the baseline, we shifted the awareness that it is not a death sentence. It doesn't have to be. It is far too often still But there's so much more to the story than that, and that we as a community can really help the families relieve their burdens by getting involved. And there was something powerful for the audience to see, you know, for example, this little boy, Sebastian, he was so proud to stand under his portrait. And all of the kids really loved the attention of people coming in, like they treated him like rock stars, you know, it was like they were seeing a portrait of Bruno Mars, and there he was. And I think for the families and the kids, that was life-changing for them, just after all they've been through. And really, the reality is most of the people who came to the show probably have no idea what these families have really gone through. But the families felt somehow vindicated and validated that the community was showing up 
to really honor what they'd been through, whether they knew it or not. And I think that was a huge takeaway for the audience was that these children are running around. And for most people, when they have a, think of a child with cancer, they don't associate that with a little kid who's like stealing the cheese off the platter, just like everybody else's kid and running around and hiding under the table. And, you know, they're causing a ruckus just like healthy children do. And I think there was a paradigm shift for people because their expectation was that all of these 20 children are probably tethered to a hospital bed vomiting. And like I said, that is definitely an important part of the story and a reality of the situation. But the flip side is also true. And I don't think people talk about this side of it enough. I've got a really noisy cat on my lap right now. So <laughs> I'm muted because I can't get her to go away. That's awesome. <laughs> I was hearing you fully and trying not to get the cat to knock over the microphone. But that's just the lens right now of how we look through things. <laughs> it is. It is. You know, I mean, my hope in that project was that, you know, we showed a short film and Melissa and I both spoke at every event. And I think we did a really good job of helping to shift people's lens on pediatric cancer so that they would maybe at very least like be more comfortable approaching a family. Or if they found out that someone in their church or their school or their organization of any kind, that they would know what to do. You know, we were really clear about giving people some suggestions of like dropping off a loaf of bread each week or like running a gift card drive in your office or like, and why these families benefit from gas cards, you know, thinking about all the number of appointments they're driving their children to. And, you know, it feels to me right now, like pretty much everything I'm doing is all at this moment converging around how we see, how we see ourselves, how we see the world. You know, because the more of your world you see, the more of a choice you have as to where you place to be of services and where to jump in and have an impact and make a difference. And at least at this stage in my life at 43, being of service really, frankly, matters more than anything else. And that's so that powerful piece right there of bridging that gap from seeing and witnessing to understanding right action and understanding yeah. service. And I think the more we begin to sort of talk into that, that makes us understand that, you know, in some ways you could look through the lens of sacred activism and understanding that, you know, when you connect your spiritual practice to, you know, where you put your money and what causes you support, it makes these personal practices, whether it's that meditative look through a lens and looking at an object in a new way, whether it's your yoga practice, whether it's, you know, sitting down on the cushion and in front of your altar, it's making that next connection into saying, and this is how it actually does make the world a better place as lofty as that may sound. You know, we know we need to have informed deep grounded reasons for why we do the next thing. Because, you know, we were talking earlier in the conversation about that mindfulness versus mindlessness. And I think a project like yours so much opens that door to say, okay, this is what you can do. So you're not just saying, oh, hi, how are you? To a mom whose son has cancer. Because I don't know if you've heard of Sheryl Sandberg just put out a new book, really talking very much into the practicality of what to do for people in those moments after great tragedy has struck or when a family is coping with something really difficult. And because she lost her husband young and suddenly, and her response to that eventually was to give people some of those I guess, practical insights, much as you're talking about gas cards and loaves of bread and helping us see that we need to get beyond you know, the likes on Facebook and being really supportive of the latest campaign and then show up for people and let them see we're actually there to do something for them. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it just seems like it's all about just raising consciousness, you know, consciousness within ourselves first, and then how that impacts global consciousness. Because I think without consciousness, it's hard to do the right thing, because it's hard to be aware enough to know what the right thing is. And to be able to say, like, is this this the right thing for me? Or is this actually the right thing? You know, because sometimes the easy thing for yourself is not necessarily the right thing for the greater good. But one of the reasons I think as silly as it sounds, and it sounds silly even to me, but I really do think that if people took their iPhone and spent 10 minutes a day looking deeply at something that they look at all the time, I mean, it could be as simple practice as just taking a 10 minute break from your laptop and like shooting stuff in your office that you see all the time. I do believe that taking 10 minutes and intentionally looking at something in a deeper way from many different perspectives and really staying with it when you're bored, when it seems stupid, when it's uncomfortable, when you're failing at it or your internal critic is telling you that you stink at it and you're never going to be good at it and like, why are you doing this anyway? I do think that it is building the muscle of being able to stay with what's difficult and being able to see things that weren't available from the perspective they were looking at before. And in that expanded perspective, I think inherent is that is expanded consciousness, even though maybe that's crazy, but I really think that. I don't think it's crazy at all, Robin. I actually think it's really beautiful. And one of the underlying messages that I think I'm hearing you talk about today is the power of witnessing Mm. and how there's a responsibility that also comes with witnessing because often when you're that seer, when you're that person who is handed that responsibility or chooses to take it, you don't just see the stuff that makes you comfortable. You also see the stuff that is hard to sit with. But when you look deeply into that stuff that's hard to sit with, you learn. You learn something that's incredible, that opens and cracks open parts of your soul. And that's the stuff as a photographer, but also just as a person who witnesses and sees things that I'm hearing that you're kind of being called to share. Yeah, well, I think it just seems like it opens up possibility. And one of the cool things about the exercise we did in the workshop is that most people really thought they were coming for a photography workshop, which, you know, in hindsight, I thought, oh, geez, maybe this felt a little like a bait and switch. And I certainly didn't mean it that way. But I had given them the exercise to take out a piece of paper and write down something that they were struggling with, like an issue they were having, and then had them go out and photograph and really see more deeply and challenge them to shoot from as many different perspectives as they could consider and then to do it again and again and intensify the practice. And then I had them come in and take out the issue, the piece of paper with the issue they were having and challenge them to be able to take the skill that they just learned by photographing and see if they could find a way to apply it to the challenge. So like whether that's, I don't know, well, okay, I have two teenage sons. So it's a great example. One of my sons really loves to play on the Xbox and I don't mind that he loves to play on the Xbox, but it was feeling like his enjoyment of that was becoming much more consuming than I had wanted it to be. And it was frustrating me because it would be a beautiful day outside. And I was thinking in my mind, well, he should be hanging out with friends and he should be hanging out with real people and he should be in the sunshine. And like, I had my list of like all the things that I was pretty sure would be better. And I think I actually shared this story in the workshop. And then I thought, okay, sister, put your money where your mouth is and 
come at this from a different perspective because I was actually starting to get really annoyed about the whole thing and it wasn't good for my relationship with him and it wasn't the energy that I wanted to have between he and I because we're really close and he's also a really smart kid so one day I went downstairs when he was playing and had him turn it off and then we just had a quick talk about it and I said you know you're such a smart kid you make great choices in general. So like, tell me what I'm not seeing about this. Like, tell me what it is you love about this. Help me understand, because if you're consciously choosing to spend this much time doing it, you know, I'm jumping the gun and assuming it's because you're trying to avoid something or like there's some negative reason for this, but like, explain this to me. And he said, you know, mom, there really isn't a camp you could sign me up for where I could be a 13 year old and be learning how to do this kind of strategic thinking. And really when I'm playing this, like I'm in charge of the mission and I'm practicing being like the leader of a team. And like, I know the people aren't in the room, but they're around the world and they're in my headset and like they're relying on me and I'm learning how to be strategic and how to think strategically. And that's not something that I can like take a class in. And, you know, I had to sit there and eat a pretty large piece of humble pie because he's right. He really loves to think strategically and act that way. And there aren't a whole lot of ways to do that at his age in this capacity. And once he explained to me his take on it, you know, we came up with a compromise that if he was really interested and passionate about this, that then he would need to interview like three other adults who have done something in a career that might have started from like video gaming, but morphed into something to be better and bigger in the world or to have a livelihood. And he's done that. And it really opened his mind to knowing that this is actually is a valuable skill he can do something with down the road. And it opened my eyes to the fact that he was doing this intentionally and whether I still limit the time that he does it, but that I'm much more comfortable knowing that he's downstairs playing on that thing for a reason that's also serving him intentionally then that he's just like wasting a whole Saturday down in the basement playing on the Xbox. And for me, being able to shift my perspective enough to talk to him opened the door to a possibility of like I'm better understanding where my child is coming from, meeting him where he is, giving him the opportunity to feel seen and heard and validated for the choices he's making. It gave him a chance to like communicate with me about something that I wasn't seeing, gave me a chance to be humbled and opened. And these are all things that I learned from like learning how to shoot something from a million different perspectives. Like, well, how am I going to come at raising teenagers from a different perspective? And yeah, and just an openness to knowing, like, I really know to my core that there is not one way. There isn't one way. There's a million ways. And I have to be open to that within myself and within the relationships I have with everyone in my life. And open to transformation, you know, because mm-hmm. so much of our show is, is focused on that. And, you know, recognizing how you help us see, you know, the productivity tool that is the phone as a sacred tool that helps us see the world in a new way. And understanding that your son's entertainment box is turning into something that's helping them build life skills. And when we allow that sort of alchemy, that sort of transformation to happen for ourselves or those around us, again, it just underlines that whole idea of possibility. And we can open ourselves to saying like, all right, I'm going to live all this to the fullest opposed to leading with my expectations and my belief that I know what's right and I know what that tool is for and what that tool is for and that that's a waste of time and that's a good thing to do with your life. Yeah, but I think for me, part of that lesson has come by because I can only hear those whispers when I'm quiet and when I'm present and when I'm available to myself. And if I'm caught up in the rat race and like the past few days have been strangely busy and a bit hectic, 
And I notice when that happens in my life that like, I really do have to set aside the time and the energy and the space for myself to reconnect to myself so that I can hear the whisper. Because if not, just like everybody else, I'll just blow past it in the busyness of it all. And for you, the photography, for you, photography is a way of reconnecting to yourself, reconnecting to that whisper. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And it's something that I think I practiced for so long unconsciously. I had no idea that that's what it was doing for me. But you know, as I've applied life coaching into part of what I do, for me, this was this incredibly natural transition because coaching is so much about helping people see themselves and to see possibilities for themselves and to transform themselves into the life they really want. And I thought, well, this is really actually exactly what I do anyway, just in a different form. Yeah, I really do feel like part of my purpose here is to help teach people and show people how to reconnect to their own divinity. And you know, that's an honor and it feels like a high task, but that's my truth. That's what I think I'm here for. Do you want to dive in a little bit more and let our audience and our listeners know about what you offer in regards to life coaching and your retreats? And Yeah. So, well, life coaching is a relatively new job title for me, but as I've gone through the training, the irony for me was that it's so much of what I do anyway. When I'm in studio with clients and on location, I'm shooting a lot of intimate portraiture, even just in shooting headshots for people. Because what I know is that when people come to be photographed, they come with a lot of fear because there's nothing more concrete about being seen than coming to be photographed, right? I mean, you're coming to be seen. And that is frankly terrifying for most people. Terrifying. Like I think some people would probably rather public speak than like be photographed one-on-one -on -one like that. And so I learned a long time ago that part of my role in that was to hold space for people and to make sure that people knew that just because I can see them, it doesn't mean that all of the horrible things that they're thinking about themselves are really showing up. Like I'm not only bearing witness to the parts of them that they really don't want me to see, but I'm actually bearing witness to all of them. And my hope always when I'm photographing someone in that way is that I'm reflecting back to them that divinity I'm talking about and not capturing like the nose they think is too big or like their eyes that they think are too far set apart. And so after being in this space and working with people and helping people reconnect to their divinity in that moment so that the divine version of themselves can be what we capture in that session and therefore the thing that they put on their business card or on their website, like who doesn't want their divine self to be the representation of them that stands strong at the forefront of all of their visual marketing, right? Like that's what I want on my website, not the part of me that's afraid that my muffin top isn't gone. You know, like I want to put myself out in the world as my highest version of myself. And I would want the person who was photographing me to get that and to reinforce that because even the reinforcing of that helps me be confident enough to put that part of myself out in the first place, right? And so in that realization, I thought, well, this is very much in line with coaching, and I'm already coaching people into that. Yeah, so now I offer portrait sessions in my studio, and for me, that's a whole host of entrepreneurs, like you guys are sort of classic, like ideal clients where you have a website and you need visual marketing materials. So I shoot a lot of that, and I shoot a lot of commercial work for larger companies, helping the larger companies visualize how to incorporate their current brand strategy with like, how do they see themselves? Ironically, it's the same process for businesses as it is for individuals. Like, 
who are you? How do you see yourself? How does the world see you? And how would you like to make that different? And like, who are you anyway? And then let's capture that. So I do that and I do life coaching one-on-one with people. And I'm really getting back into thinking about offering one-on-one transformative sessions for people so that it's a combination of coaching and portrait sessions so that I really get the opportunity to walk them through what are you feeling like just anticipating being seen? Like what's coming up for you just in that process alone through the photo shoot and then through some coaching afterwards? Like, so what did you see and who do you know yourself to be now? And how can you take this information and let that be transformative into where you really want to go? I'm curious about that. I have a crush on your job, Robin. (laughs) (laughs) I love what I do, but right now I have a total crush on your job. (laughs) I think it sounds more glamorous than it really is, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's important, right? I mean, I think it's important that people see themselves because if you only see yourself through the lens of the stories of your past, of who you are and what's not good enough about you or what's fat about you or what's ugly about you or what's not like that only reinforces people's capacity to not show up for themselves. And I'm just curious about like, well, how much life changing happenings when you do show up for yourself, but we don't teach these things to children, right? We don't teach people the art of showing up for yourself. We instead say that it's selfish. Yeah. Or it's narcissistic, or we give it a whole bunch of labels that don't sound good. When in order for us to feel confident about ourselves and for people to really get the gifts that we have to offer the world... We have to be able to see them ourselves first. There's no way that other people can see them if we can't see them ourselves. Yeah, and own it. Yeah, but I think that the other ironic thing is so many people actually have had like really bad pictures of themselves taken, you know, usually on accident because it's like somebody who doesn't really know how to take a picture is taken like a photo of someone from a horrible angle and it just happens to, you know, like, I don't know, let's say they think they have a big butt and then somebody took a lousy picture of them and their butt actually looks big, but not because they have a big butt, but because they like shot it from an angle where anybody's like, whatever, Giselle Bunchen's butt would have looked big at that angle, right? And the negative images get reinforced and the negative stories get reinforced. So I think it's important that there's like a little bit of a stopgap and to be able to give people imagery that really shows them their divinity, not a weird angle of their butt. <laughs> yeah, that's my wisdom right or, or there. Or show them a really new divine angle of their butt. Yeah, right. If you want to shoot your butt, let's shoot it well, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because those things really do. I mean, if you feel, if you're subconscious about the size of your nose and somebody takes a horrible photo of your face and your nose, like it sounds silly, but it's really traumatic actually for people. And like that becomes the person who doesn't ask for a raise in their job because they're afraid to look somebody in the eye because they're terrified they're just staring at their nose. And it sounds foolish, but I've heard it too many times. It's truly a thing. Well, you know, it seems so important, especially as we're sort of landing this conversation, that we come to talk about this because, you know, we live in this culture that's such a cult of beauty. And, you know, we know that the standard is so often, you know, the thin white woman in the middle class or upper middle class, and she has to look a certain way and have a certain aesthetic around her. And I think that often seems to push the pendulum in the other direction that says, okay, well, it's not about looking pretty. It's about looking powerful or looking real or looking this or looking that. And I love how you're bringing us to the sense of value of, no, you still need to feel really comfortable, really good, really understanding your own divinity in the way that you look, because that's part of this overall package of who we are. We're visual creatures with bodies. 
and we respond to beauty in ourselves and beauty in others. And that has to be allowed, even as we question the ways it's been perverted. Yeah, and I really think it doesn't matter, like shape, size, color, age, gender, whatever. I believe everybody lays their head on their pillow at the end of the night, really, really wanting to take the next day and step into their divinity in a bigger way. But it's terrifying. And for women in particular, I think it's really hard because we take our tribe down quicker than the men do, I think. You know, women judge each other and poke fun at their shoes and poke fun at the terrible. It still happens. And I think it's hard for a woman to stand in a room and say, you know what, I'm beautiful and I'm going to own that. Her sisters who would take her down first for like, how dare you? You know, like, who are you to say you are beautiful? You know, and that's a huge disservice I think we do to ourselves. Huge. Yeah. So, you know, if my piece of the world can be to help people see themselves differently and that helps them get to a place where they can then be more impactful because they know themselves better and their consciousness is a little heightened. Even if it just means they just drop one story, you know, maybe they're like, oh, you know what? My eyebrows really aren't that weird. Like they don't look that weird in this picture. Maybe they're not that weird. Maybe I can let go of the story that I have weird eyebrows and then I don't need to spend so much time and energy worrying about them. And then I don't have to hide them and I don't have to cower from things because I've been trying to dissuade you from seeing what I'm uncomfortable with you seeing. And I mean, it's really a big deal for more people than we think. It's really a practice of helping people get comfortable in their uncomfortable places. Yeah, and I really do. I know when people come into my studio, if I had a nickel, I mean, every time somebody comes, it doesn't matter, man or woman, they're like, I'm just telling you, like, I'm really not going to be good at this, and I'm not photogenic, and my this and my that, and uh, I'm like, yeah, no, I know, it's everyone. But then I think, well, if I were to step into someone's studio for them to, like, what I feel like is to like stare at me, I'm equally uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable process to be afraid of what someone else is going to see because God, like what would happen, right? What if they came in and I was like, girl, your nose is huge. I mean, of course, I'm never going to think that or say that, but that's the fear. Like subconsciously, they're afraid they're going to come in and I'm going to go, you're right. You are right. You could not be uglier. You know, the power of fear to tell us that like it probably shouldn't show up because she's probably going to validate all the stuff you think. And in fact, that's not at all what happens. And as a photographer, what you say is often as important as what you shoot and show someone after. Like, for example, I remember Rebecca and I had our photos taken together over this past winter. And the photographer said to me something about it's such a pleasure to shoot someone with such a symmetrical face. And uh, I always thought I was the most crooked looking eyeball up to the left. You and the you world. and Denzel, Denzel Washington, apparently is the most symmetrical man on the planet. Who knew? I don't. Who knew? I, and I still not even hundred percent sure that it's true. But there was something <laughs> that she saw that balanced yeah. me out for yeah. myself. Because all of a sudden you're like, oh, maybe I don't need to hold on to the idea that I'm all crooked. Right. Maybe I'm not crooked. Mm-hmm. Okay, who would I be if I'm not crooked? Right. 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 All of a sudden, you're in the land of possibility again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it felt like it was about so much more than, you know, where my left eyebrow was. And yes. yeah. 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 And, you know, ideally, I mean, I feel like it's as much my job to, you know, I really believe that when people are in a state of resonance, when people feel good, when people are connected to that divine part of themselves, that's the place where inspired action comes from. That's where the consciousness comes from. So if someone's with me, to be photographed, my goal is to help bring them to a place where they're feeling good and to a place where they're really 
resonating with themselves and with their purpose and with things they're passionate about and feel good about because, and it's not a gimmick to like keep the session just lighthearted so they smile in a picture. It's really because I feel like when we tap into that part of ourselves that's inspired and connected and knows what it wants and sees possibility for itself, we embody that in a totally different way than the part of us that's afraid and unsure and doubtful and concerned. And maybe it's as simple as kind of the old adage of like, in any given moment, you can choose fear or you can choose love. A good friend of mine was just reminding me of that yesterday. And it's kind of true. Like, it's just my job in that moment and my responsibility as a seer to help people find their alignment and be in a better feeling place and be in their best resonance so that they get to see that reflected back to them in the photograph. Because I think that's how you uplift people and reconnect them. That feels like the perfect place to land this amazing conversation. We've covered so much and so grateful, Robin. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm. Robin, where can our listeners find you? They can find me at robinivy.com. It's Robin with a Y. They can find me on Instagram. Most of my handles are at Robin Ivy, R-O-B-Y-N-I-V-Y. Yep, Facebook, Instagram. I'm not much of a tweeter, but yeah, I haven't caught on. My ADD doesn't like Twitter. Twitter's confusing. Yeah, I'm hoping that everybody's ADD quits Twitter, but... I don't get it. I just, I don't know. Yeah, talk about resonance. I don't resonate with Twitter. I don't get it. Maybe I'm just too old. Or too visual. I think that's why Instagram is probably one of the perfect places for people to find you. That I'm a fan. Absolutely. Facebook is great too. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll include all your viewer links on our show notes. And we look forward to connecting with you again soon. Awesome. Great. We hope that you enjoyed today's show with Robin Ivy. We certainly loved having a conversation with her. And we hope that you'll go to our show notes to learn more about Robin's upcoming retreat in Mexico this October called the See Here Now Retreat. There's a link in our show notes. In our show notes, you can also learn more about Robin's work by visiting her website, learning more about her recent work with pediatric cancer and following her on Instagram. We include all of those links in our show notes. So please do check it out. And as I discussed in the beginning of the show, Marisa and I are pivoting and going our own directions. Next week, we'll be releasing two more co-hosted episodes of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. And then I'll have a solo episode before I take a little break for about a month. And restructure the podcast a little bit. I hope that you continue to enjoy the content that we're putting out and visit us over at thepracticeofbeingseen.com to learn more about what's coming up. Please help to spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone Studio. <laughs>